Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Philanthropists are generally well regarded. It is better, surely, to spend your money on good causes rather than a super yacht. But simple approval can mask some important moral considerations about what philanthropy means for the donor and for the recipient. And those issues are at the heart of Emma Saunders Hastings' work. She's just written Private Virtues, Public Vices, Philanthropy and Democratic Equality. And uh, she sees a tension uh, between the two. So, uh, well, first of all, welcome. Thank you. And I think you should begin by telling us about Spurious Milius, who I hadn't come across, but you met an unfortunate end. Why, why don't you uh, tell, us, tell us about him? Well, the historian Titus Livy tells, and then Machiavelli retells, a story of Spurius Malius, who apparently, during a time of famine in ancient Rome, gave grain from his private supplies to the plebeians of the city. And so seems like a story of a, a very generous person. But Livy and Machiavelli both say that sometimes things that appear generous, works that appear merciful, can pose challenges to political order. And so what the Roman Senate did was immediately have Spurius Malius executed. So this is a very harsh way of dealing with philanthropy, clearly, and not one that I recommend in the book. But I tell the story as an example of political actors worrying about philanthropy as a political threat, not just a private virtue. Right. And and I guess they were thinking that his philanthropy was a danger to them because it would make him popular and that could upset the political status quo. Exactly. They say that because of his donations, he had such a following of people around him that the Senate got worried that he posed a threat to their power. There is another aspect to philanthropy, which is that it actually keeps the status quo because it's a, it, it's patching up the deficiencies in political systems and helping them survive. Yeah, and certainly in the case of ancient philanthropy, that was an important part of the story as well. Pre-modern regimes that had limited powers of taxation relied heavily on contributions from their wealthy citizens to fund public festivals, warships, things of that kind. So it played a very important stabilizing role in regimes as well as a potential challenge. All right, so already it's more complicated than it first seems. So can you now run us through some of the thoughts you've had about this. And you you draw a distinction between the distributional effects of philanthropy and the relationship effects of philanthropy. So we'll start with distribution. And I guess the obvious point is that philanthropy is praised because many people see money going from rich people to poor people. Yeah. So my thought is that there are different perspectives from which we can try to evaluate the effects of philanthropy. And one is, does it move stuff around in a direction that we approve of? After the distribution of philanthropy, do we think that the outcomes look better from the point of view of who has access to resources? That's the distributive perspective. And I don't mean to suggest that it's not important. Of course it is. But I think it risks leading us to neglect what I call a relational perspective, which can be equally important. And that has to do with who controls what, uh, what do relationships of status look like between people. 
And my thought is that the distributive and relational questions don't always overlap. Sometimes even when goods or resources are flowing in a direction that looks good, looks beneficial, relationships of control or authority or status could be changing in ways that look more troubling. Yeah, I mean, the relationship aspect of it is probably the more interesting bit. But let's just deal with the distribution first. And I mean, there are various issues there, such as what's the basis for deciding who gets what, and particularly which philanthropic efforts the state is going to support with uh, tax breaks and so on. So what, what, yeah, what conclusions did you reach about state aid for philanthropists? It's a complicated question because it's a question that we could try to answer at different levels of idealization. You might think that in a better, more just society, there would be all kinds of things the state might fund and provide in a more robust way through taxation, um, and that this would lead to less reliance on philanthropy, at least for some important kinds of public goods like education and health. Given that we're not in that kind of world, there may be a case for state support of things that we would prefer be publicly funded. So sometimes a focus on the tax deduction can be a bit of a distraction. In the US and in many other countries, philanthropy is funded through a mechanism by which people subtract their philanthropic donations from their tax returns. Um, And so this means that uh, if you make, say, a $100 donation and you're in a 35% tax bracket, the thought is you're only really paying $65. The state is kicking in the rest in the form of tax relief. One objection to that is that the subsidy skews very, very heavily toward wealthy people. And that's partly because it's only available to people who itemize their tax returns, not people who take the standard deduction. And people who are itemizing their tax returns are usually wealthier in the first place. And given progressive income taxation, people in higher tax brackets see their donations subsidized at a higher rate than other people. So I agree with many other critics who think that this is an unfairness in the tax code, that this leads to public funding disproportionately subsidizing the preferences of the wealthy. But I think that proposals to replace the deduction with a voucher system or some alternative mechanism of more equitably subsidizing people's philanthropic preferences would still neglect some important relational questions. That is, it wouldn't necessarily address some of the problems I'm interested in that have to do with problems of influence and control that don't necessarily track these distributive mechanisms. One possible reform to that is is the system in the UK where the tax break doesn't go to the individual but goes to the charity. Exactly. I mean, that would solve some of those problems, but not the relation, not the relational aspects of it. It solves the problem of directing disproportionate amounts of the public subsidy to the wealthy. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem of a nonprofit sector that's oriented to wealthy people's preferences, because subsidized or not, they're still in a position to exert much more influence than ordinary donors are. Now then, it's interesting, and you're discussing this, you're talking about how there's a a presumption in favour of the state providing some of these services. And yet, when you take people like Warren Buffett, who famously gave an enormous amount of money to Bill Gates's uh, philanthropic outfit, uh, he he chose to do it presumably because he thought Bill Gates would spend the money better than the, the Department of Health in the US government. So there is a sense in which philanthropic organisations can be maybe more efficiently run than state institutions. Yeah, I certainly think that's true. Presumably that would then favour some kind of tax break to encourage people to give those funds to philanthropists. 
Well, I mean, it depends whether you think they need the tax break as an incentive to do it, right? One question is whether the tax break elicits more donations than we're foregoing in tax revenue, or at least you would need to know that to make an all things considered judgment. And I don't think it's so clear. Something you see increasingly now is wealthy people setting up their giving vehicles as limited liability corporations instead of traditional foundations. That is, foregoing the tax breaks they could get by setting up a foundation because the LLC vehicle gives them more flexibility to make for-profit investments or donate to political causes as well as charitably. That's interesting. So, so people are, are preferring not take the tax break. And, and what control, you, you say it helps them do more political things. That must be a large part of that. But what, what, are, what are the other reasons they like to do that? Uh, well, they can also invest in for-profit companies. So if you're a foundation, you're limited to grant making to uh, nonprofits and charities. An LLC can spend on what it likes. So what we see now is people creating a portfolio of giving instruments or instruments for exercising influence through their money, not all of which are tax deductible. So part of what that suggests to me is that the tax deduction is only a part of the motivations wealthy people have for giving. It's also about how they can use their wealth to achieve outcomes they care about. And just finally, on this distributional aspect of it, I mean, it's fair to say in your book, you're arguing that yeah, the very large sums of money that uh, are directed towards philanthropy in the US, something like $450 billion a year, I mean, it's a huge amount of money. You see that as repairing democratic failure, do you? Or at least to some extent? Sorry, what do you mean by repairing democratic failure? Well, that that, that, uh, democracies, I think, uh, by your account, have greater equality of power and maybe distribution of resources in the system, and that philanthropy is helping repair that. Good. Uh, So I think it's complicated. I think some philanthropy is. Some philanthropy is doing things that a more just state should be doing itself. But that's not true of all philanthropy. Some philanthropy, in fact, might be doing things that a state shouldn't be in the business of funding or supplying. So in the United States, about a third of total donations go to religious organizations. That's not something that I think the state has a responsibility directly to support. And so to answer that kind of question, I think you need to disaggregate donations and think about what different kinds of philanthropy we're talking about here, which could stand in very different relationships to the question of whether public funding or support is appropriate. Sure. So let's just take that two thirds then that's not going to religious institutions and maybe some other categories like religious institutions, but those that are going to address social needs of some kind. How do you assess the validity of such uh, donations in terms of their relationship to good democratic practice? Mm -hmm. So again, I think there are multiple questions you want to ask. First, about the value of the thing, the good or service being supplied. And then secondly, what the distribution of control over that good or service should look like. Part of the argument in my book is that many important matters of common concern, things where there's a presumption that they should be under the collective control of members of society or at least some kind of shared influence over them, are instead being funded through the unilateral decision-making authority of philanthropists. So that's what I worry about. Now, you could try to respond to that problem in different ways. One would be to put it under the authority of a democratic state or democratic government bodies. That might not always be a practicable solution. And of course, we recognize that in democracies, public institutions also suffer suffer from democratic defects. 
So another solution is to try to democratize philanthropy itself, to try to change the relationships of authority and control that exist within the philanthropic sector. So I don't think that you need to respond to all of the democratic worries we might have about philanthropy by trying to put control in the hands of the state, right? That there can be a more pluralistic solution without denying the problem of redistributing authority in some way. I'm not quite getting that distinction. So, so I mean... I think what you're saying is that regulation of philanthropy by democratic institutions could answer some of the problems. Is that right? Yes, it is. But uh, one objection that comes up when we're talking about regulating philanthropy is, well, do you want the state controlling everything? And I don't. I think that existing states themselves have serious problems in the degree of democratic legitimacy that they enjoy. And I also think that even in a much more just or egalitarian society, you would still have people who who wanted to give their money away to benefit other people. I think even a socialist society could have some role for this. And so I think that rather than thinking of it all in terms of do we want the state doing something or do we want philanthropy doing something, we can think in a more complicated way about what distributions of power should look like. And that can mean redistributing power within philanthropic organizations and institutions, as well as trying to change the balance of power between public and private actors. Okay, so so that's this, that's a distributional bit of it. And and then, as you've you know, kept referring to, there are these other things to think about, which is what a philanthropist gains from philanthropic activity and what it does to the recipient. Can you just give us, you know, first of all, just a broad introduction, if you like, to your, to your thinking on, on that issue? Good. So I'm working here in a tradition that I associate especially with some 19th century thinkers like John Stuart Mill and Jane Addams, of people who worried about philanthropy as potentially subordinating for the beneficiaries. Now, that could be a weird thought, right? How can benefiting someone subordinate them? And the thought that a lot of 19th century theorists and practitioners had was that givers and people dispensing charitable aid quite typically thought that by benefiting someone, they gained a right to exercise certain kinds of control over them. So in the paradigm case of charity from middle class or wealthy people towards the poor, um, you see people imposing behavioral conditions on the receipt of benefits or sort of intervening directly in poor people's houses and dispensing advice as a supplement to and sometimes condition for receiving aid. And people like John Stuart Mill and Jane Addams thought that these create relationships that are inappropriate in a democratic society, paternalistic relationships that might be more suited to feudal or aristocratic contexts, uh, but that aren't appropriate between citizens who should think of themselves as free and equal and reciprocally entitled to control their own lives. Part of what I try to do is generalize that thought to the more complicated and institutional kinds of philanthropy that we see today. Now, there's a very striking example you gave in the book, which sort of illustrated that point, which was from Detroit. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah. So during um, the proceedings that followed Detroit's declaration of bankruptcy, various foundations stepped in to fund pensions that were underfunded by the city. And as part of the grand bargain that eventually resolved the bankruptcy proceedings, the foundations imposed certain conditions on the 
assistance that they were supplying. So one of them was that the Detroit Institute of Art would be converted from a public institution to a nonprofit and that um, none of the art in the collection could ever be sold in the future to help fund public sector pensions. So the point isn't that that was a bad outcome. I think if you care about uh, the Detroit Institute of Arts, which is a wonderful institution, then you might value the sort of security and stability that that gives. But there does seem to me to be something quite striking and troubling about private foundations setting conditions, including on the privatization of of public institutions in this way. So it's an enormous transfer of control, even if we think that the aims of the foundations and the purposes for which they're giving the money are morally very good. I mean, that does raise difficult moral issues. It's a bit like George Soros, isn't it? I mean, after the the collapse of the I'm trying to remember what it was called, the Euro, the, yeah, the precursor to the European currency, uh, when that all collapsed and he made a huge amount of money and started spending it on democratic development in Eastern Europe. I remember him making the comment that, you know, I only have to do this because governments don't and they should be and they're not. So I've taken money off the government and I'm spending it better than they would. So obviously there's a, a democratic problem there. But in in terms of his objectives, it was to advance uh, democratic development, which he did quite effectively in, in Eastern Europe. So it's a rather parallel case, is it, is it not, where you've got public objectives that most people would agree with. They've just been achieved by private donors. Yeah, I think we're so used to evaluating philanthropy in terms of personal morality or ethics, that that's where our attention goes. And of course, many of the people we're talking about here, the donors we're talking about, are morally admirable people. They have serious convictions about important aims that they're trying to pursue, and often they're doing that in very generous ways. So my complaint isn't that donors are uh, covertly self-interested or, or really trying to benefit themselves. That's one complaint you sometimes hear about philanthropy, and I don't mean to suggest it can never be true, but the democratic objections that I'm pointing to can apply even if we think that donors really are well-motivated and often do have reasonable views about what would benefit people. Right? Um, the point is that that just doesn't map on to the political question of who should be exercising influence and control over something. And this is something that people said about Oliver North in the Iran-Contra scandal. At least he wasn't in it for himself. I want to say it doesn't matter if he was in it for himself. The question is, what's the appropriate distribution of authority over something? Yeah, I can see that. But th- that's an argument about democracy, not about the relationship between the donor and the donee, isn't it? Because in, in the case of the Detroit Institute of Art, I mean, it wasn't as if the the philanthropists were in any relationship, really, with the workers who were getting their pensions, and other than helping them get their pensions, they, they weren't imposing any conditions on the workers. I see. So I think about the Detroit case as illustrating some of the democratic concerns, that right. is, a privatization of authority away from democratic control. Okay, understood. So, 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 And then, well, talk us through the other bit then, which is the the paternalism, as you put it, of some philanthropic relationships. Yeah. So paternalism, as I define it, involves exercising influence or control over somebody in ways that express a disrespect for their ability to choose or act well on their own behalf. So standardly, people worry about paternalism from government or paternalism that's expressed through coercion. I'm arguing that we should take a broader view about what kinds of exercises of power can count as troublingly paternalistic. 
So I think that philanthropy can count as paternalistic when decisions about how to donate or about how programs are managed happen in ways that try to limit or restrict the future control that beneficiaries can exercise um, or simply that limit and constrain um, the options of beneficiaries for their own goods. So here I'm not talking about the kinds of conditions donors might impose on um, institutions. I don't think you can paternalize an institution, you paternalize people. But often by attaching conditions on their gifts to institutions, donors are able to paternalize the people those institutions serve. So a case that's more recent than the book, but that got some media attention was Charlie Munger, uh, a billionaire who donated $200 million toward a new dorm for uh, the University of California in Santa Barbara. Uh, the total cost of the dorm is going to be much, much higher, about $1.5 billion, but he's paying for part of it. And as a condition for his donation, um, he stipulated that he be able to design the building. Uh, so he's an architecture hobbyist, not a trained architect. Uh, and he has a design where students are going to be placed in these very small windowless rooms clustered around shared living spaces. And his theory is that this is going to help drive them out of their rooms to socialize more in person, in common, and that that'll be good for them. So I don't know whether or not he's right about that. I guess we'll find out. But I think that that's an inappropriate kind of condition for the university to have accepted. It's allowed uh, this condition to permit a donor paternalizing their students with very little evidence that he knows what's best for them. And even if he did, I think that's an inappropriate kind of relationship to allow between a donor and your students. That's, that's an interesting example. What, have you thought about what paternalistic constraints or requirements the state puts on recipients of its largesse? How does, I mean, I'm really asking, how does it compare with what the state does? So I certainly think that paternalism is a huge concern in cases of state policymaking as well. Plenty of state welfare programs, for example, have had paternalistic conditions attached, often in ways that are sort of directed at particular parts of the population. And so none of this is to say that state paternalism isn't a concern. However, I think that in the case of the state, there are at least some formal institutional mechanisms by which people can challenge their exposure to paternalistic treatment. Those might be more or less effective. I think you should strengthen them if possible. Um, but that that's a kind of accountability that's missing in philanthropic relationships. So I think paternalism in general is more troubling when there aren't ways for the people who are exposed to it to contest it and hold the paternalizers accountable. So that seems like one important difference between government and private paternalism to me. Of course, government paternalism is threatening because of the power of the state and its ability to use coercion. But on the other side of the ledger, we need to consider the accountability mechanisms that might mitigate some of the worries. Yeah, I can see that. But at the same time, I guess on the philanthropic side, you know, in the example you just gave, the university is free to say no. You know, and, and that's the that's the accountability, right? Yeah. Well, um, so I don't think it's the university that's wronged in this case. The university is free to say no, but because we're talking now about sort of large institutionalized philanthropy, people can be exposed to paternalism from donors in ways that they may not themselves personally control. So students um, don't have the same kind of ability to say no. So the argument isn't sort of the philanthropist is the bad guy and the university was the victim here. I think institutions have responsibilities that they often neglect to um, limit people's exposure to paternalism. 
So I think that the university's acceptance of the condition is is one of my concerns here. Now, the United States in particular has these very well-known massive philanthropists, you know, people who give billions of dollars. And obviously, they're highly controversial. However, many philanthropic donations are from much less wealthy people who give you know, relatively small amounts of money, but there are just lots of them. And so they can make a big difference. And, and I know you've thought about this. What, what's the moral distinction, do you believe, or isn't there one, between the small donor and the big donor? I would say that the important distinction is political rather than moral, right? The small donor and big donor might have similar kinds of motivations, but the point is that the big donor is just in a position to exercise a qualitatively different kind of power than the small donor. When I write a check to a charity around Christmas time, I'm not in a position to attach conditions to the money that I'm giving, or at least to expect that those conditions would be accepted by an organization. But for large donors, conditions on gifts are quite typical and then can be enforced over time. So large donors are able to maintain control over the money they're giving away. And there are new institutional vehicles that help them do this, like donor-advised funds, as well as traditional foundations. Um, So it's that durable kind of influence over the money that I think changes the sort of power that we're talking about donors exercising. Of course, when small donors in large amounts give to an institution, like a charity, we might worry about the power that that institution can exercise that might be more closely analogous to the large donor. But what I'm worried about are concentrations of power. And that doesn't apply in the same kind of way to to ordinary donors. You're more comfortable about small donors with the qualification that the charity they give to may exercise undue influence. That's right. But there must be, in your thinking about relationships, the same impact on the recipient whether it's a small donor or a big donor, there's a, there is a feeling of inferiority, is it, or or of having to receive charity, a, def, a required deference or something like that, it, it, which would apply whether it's a small or big donor. I think that can be true. So the two main concerns I talk about in the book are on the one hand, this large scale democratic concern of donors usurping democratic control over something. And I think that is more distinctively a problem about large donors. And then second, there's paternalism and these other sort of relational issues that can arise even at a smaller scale. And that I think you're right to say can play out even when the donations we're talking about are not very large, and especially when it's occurring face-to-face between people. Because small donations are so often institutionally mediated, some of that might be taken away a little bit. So when people get help from food bank or the United Way, as opposed to the individual donors. Um, but you're right that at different scales, it can it can certainly still be an issue. Just as it happens, I was at a, a, um, a food bank in North London recently, and the man who organised it, who was very much uh, a community leader from the community, insisted that he would never give cash to his uh, clients, as it were, because he said they'll you know, spend them on drugs and alcohol, and I don't want them to do that. So, I mean, that was a straight paternalistic relationship, even at that very local level with very small donors. Yeah, and I think often um, the appeal of that is used even as a fundraising strategy by organizations. There's a group called Donors Choose um, that facilitates small donations to uh, public schools in the United States. So the way it works is that teachers make a post about what kinds of supplies they need for their classroom and that donors at various levels can choose which projects to fund. 
And in the advertising for this organization, they really play up the fact that by doing this, you can exercise the kinds of control that used to be reserved for large donors. You can see exactly where your money is going and be confident that that here it is. In some cases, you can get a thank you note from the students. And so I worry about cases where the emotional appeal of these kinds of relationships to the donor are being used to to reproduce, I think, messages that are inimical to egalitarian citizenship relations. Right, uh, inimical to that. But, I mean, how do you confront the argument that that paternalism I saw in North London was probably very well placed and and is to the benefit of the recipient as well? Yeah. Um, So this, again, goes to, I think, the distributional question. It is not my claim that paternalism can never promote people's welfare. I think it can, um, whether that's government paternalism or paternalism by private actors. But I think whether it does or doesn't, there are really important relational reasons for objecting to it, that it promotes subordinating relationships between people. Now, in cases where the paternalizer is giving something that the recipient doesn't have a right to, right? doesn't have a claim on, we might think they have a perfect right to act paternalistically. I would say there are still reasons to act non-paternalistically. Now, that doesn't mean that any drop of paternalism is unacceptable and you should never do it. Right? There are important trade-offs to weigh here, depending on how important the welfare benefit being conferred is and whether there's a way of conferring it without resort to paternalism. But I would at least want to register the element of paternalism as a moral and political concern. Think about the kinds of relationships we're constructing, even if our aim in doing so is to benefit people. So you're really saying you just want sort of open assessments, you know, open, frank assessments of each relationship, each philanthropic decision? Open, frank assessments, and that I think there's a pattern in the history of philanthropy of resorting too quickly to paternalism, assuming too quickly that control by the donor is necessary to benefiting other people. I think sometimes that assumption is warranted, but often it's not. Often it's just a reflection of prejudice. And and what what about uh, the donors? Because you've listed uh, or run through many of the effects on recipients, beneficial and harmful. With the donors, there's lots of benefits to philanthropy, you know, social reputation, uh, power, as you're saying. Uh, are there any harms to donors that you that you thought of? From practicing philanthropy, you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that subordinating relationships are bad for everyone involved in them. I don't put too much stress on that in the book because I think you can argue against them just by pointing to the badness of being subordinated. But I think that egalitarian relations, democratic relations are valuable for all parties and that by exercising inappropriate kinds of control over people, um, you might deprive yourself of some of those goods. I guess the more obvious harm that donors themselves might point to is the increasing criticism that we see of some philanthropic donations. So donors like the Sackler family appear to have believed think correctly for a while, that their donations would insulate them from political criticism associated with the role of their company, Purdue Pharma. But now the donations that were once um, a source of positive reputation have become, I think, a bit of a vulnerability. We've seen protests at Sackler-funded institutions around the world where the donation itself becomes an opportunity for a broader kind of political criticism of the donor. So the publicity that you get from donations can bring think, 
unwelcome attention as well as positive reputation. It's also the case of Bill Gates, who, you know, in comparison, has made his money in what most people would consider a more morally sound way. I mean, whatever one might think about the amount of money he's made, uh, you know, software isn't the same as opium. And and he he is also coming under attack, isn't he, for being on the wrong end of various conspiracy theories. And, and it, that's affecting his reputation, I guess, the way he sees it. Yeah. Um, Soros, you've already mentioned, is another one who's been quite a longstanding target of anti-Semitic and anti-immigration conspiracy theories. And so you can get quite a bit of negative attention in this way as well. I mean, I think part of the tension in philanthropy is that donors presumably want to have some kind of important public impact through their giving, or at least many of them do. But many are also averse to the kind of attention that comes from that. So Mackenzie Scott is another interesting example of someone who, since her divorce from Jeff Bezos, has been moving staggering amounts of money out the door, but trying to do this while insisting on on her own right to privacy. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic with that. I think it's a totally understandable preference set, but it's one that in a democracy poses certain problems, the desire to have a large public impact while shielding yourself from public scrutiny. I'd like to ask you about international philanthropy, which has certain different qualities, doesn't it? Partly because of the distance, I guess, between the recipient and the the donor. And there's also, I mean, it always occurs to me that seeing aid institutions in developing countries, there is a slightly colonial aspect to it uh, that I've observed with young people rather like their colonial forebears from the West going to these countries and telling people what to do. Uh, So what what have you thought about international philanthropy? Yeah, so I think the same kinds of issues that worry me in domestic philanthropy of undemocratic power and paternalism arise again in international philanthropy. The paternalism one, as you say, sort of works quite simply and intuitively is something that strikes many people. I think the democracy concern looks a little different internationally because obviously when I'm donating internationally, there's not an expectation that the recipient and I are under the authority of the same democratic government or should exercise equal influence over the relevant government actors. So I think the distinctive democratic concern in the case of international philanthropy is how do you give without eroding or disrupting democratic relationships within the host country. And a perennial problem in NGO aid has been the issue of accountability becoming oriented to external actors rather than domestic, accountable political actors. So the question of how you give, and often there's a, a case for giving outside local government structures for some of the reasons you've already mentioned, that it'll be more efficient, it'll be better managed. But what does that do to the authority, the legitimacy, the democracy of domestic politics? I mean, if, if, if they're democratic systems, I mean, one of the problems in, in some authoritarian systems is that the governments want to divert the aid to particular parts of the population for overtly political reasons. That's true, although even in non-democratic systems, I think there are some parallel concerns that come up, that aid can stabilize uh, authoritarian governments that then realize they don't need to spend on the things that they can count on external actors to be providing through charity. And so some authors have suggested that in addition to subverting relationships of democratic accountability, aid could, under some conditions, prevent 
the formation of relationships like that in the first place prevent claims making against the state that might otherwise develop. In many of your answers, you're talking about the threat to sort of normal relationships in society. Mm -hmm. And yet there is another aspect of philanthropy, isn't there, which is it, it sort of creates institutions and really civil society in that it, it, it brings people together. It may be on a donor donee basis, but nonetheless, important local and national institutions are created by philanthropists, which help bind people together. Yes, I think that can be true. And so, and again, you're just saying that's part of the, the yeah, that has to be thrown into the mix when you're making moral judgments about, or political judgments about whether a particular donation is appropriate or not. Well, so again, I'm not saying that the state is the only actor that should be trying to bind people together. Um, mm. I would agree with your point about the value of a diverse, pluralistic civil society. But I think even outside the auspices of the state, we can ask about the terms on which people are being bound together. Is it in egalitarian relationships or in hierarchical ones? And I think in a democracy, we as citizens shouldn't be indifferent as to which it is. And so different models of this civil society bonding look to me very different, whether we're talking about sort of community organizing or mutual aid or other traditions that emphasize reciprocity and equality, as opposed to some of these more paternalistic models. As we look ahead, is it, let, let's take where you are now, the States, because it is, it, philanthropy is such a big part of American society. As you look ahead, I, I get the impression from what you're saying, you think that the power is tilting in, in favour of the philanthropist rather, rather than the other way. Is that is that just about right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I was nervous about the title of this podcast, The Future Of, because I do see different possible futures for philanthropy in the US and I have trouble predicting what it will be. I think we're at a time when people are very, very disillusioned, reasonably, I think, about state capacity for action to help people. And I think that that understandably really increases the attractions of philanthropy as a mode of benefiting people. And so I worry then about what lessons people take from that. Is it that okay, then we need to work on democratizing our models of philanthropy or thinking sort of across public, private, and third sector of, of how to change relationships in more democratic ways? Or do we embrace a kind of technocratic philanthropy that says, no, we're, we're giving up on democratic politics and just going to trust to the control of rich people to solve social problems? Right. And and I, I suspect you think the latter is is quite, is the direction of travel. That's my worry, yeah. Yeah, and and so, but when you just to sort of be more specific about that, what what's been happening in the you know, in the world of philanthropy? Uh, I think you've mentioned some of the things that are going on in terms of the ability of philanthropists to control their funds, you know, in a way that they want more more easily. Uh, what kind of things are happening that are tilting the balance in favour of the power of the philanthropist? I mean, so some of it is not institutional changes so much as features of, of who the donors are who are getting involved and what their preferences are. So we're now seeing many more young donors, uh, donors who sort of made their own money, often in the tech sector. There's been a, a huge shift in sort of the balance of philanthropic power to the West Coast um, and Silicon Valley. And Often these are people who are preferring a more hands-on approach to giving than earlier generations of philanthropists did. So in the early parts of the 20th century, you often saw a donor endow a foundation and then kind of 
ignore it and leave it to the management of the trustees. And we're seeing less and less of that. It's been people giving in their own lifetimes and preferring to make their own decisions and receive updates about how their money is being used. Now, if what we care about is are the donor's outcomes being achieved as well as possible, that's a reasonable approach. Often these are people who are sort of used to managing large enterprises who think they're good at that and so want to remain involved in it. But it does create, I think, more of an issue of the kinds of control that I'm worried about. Yeah. Is, is, is there a, a trend towards more liberal causes with younger philanthropists? Are, are, is, is that changing the, the, you know, the, the type of philanthropy that's happening? Some of it's a little bit difficult to, to map onto the sort of liberal conservative political spectrum. I think a lot of the donors, and this has been true in in the 60s as well, are, are people who read socially liberal and, and certainly embrace that language. On the other hand, they have some preferences that might tilt more conservative, for instance, and aversion to unions in education. And so often you see sort of liberal values of benefiting poor people, benefiting formerly oppressed groups, alongside a hostility to some of the collective organizations that other liberals would support for for some of the same objectives. Well, thank you very much. I just wanted to end on one thought, which is, I mean, I'm not sure what you'll be able to say about it, but it's just something that's always uh, remained with me. Having talked to Pakistan's, I, yeah, I do a lot on Pakistan, and Pakistan's greatest philanthropist was a man called Edie. And uh, he has set up, he's died recently, but set up huge amounts of uh, social benefits in Pakistan, including the whole ambulance service and you know, many, many other things. And he always said the one thing he never had to worry about, despite Pakistan being a very poor society relative to the West, he said the one thing he never had to worry about was the donations. They, they always came in. And that even though Pakistan, you know, many Pakistanis had very small amounts of money, they were very philanthropic and, and uh, gave very generously with what they'd had. And I, I suspect that that kind of philanthropy would trouble you less than what you've been describing in in, America and other Western countries? Well, it would, because I think the people you're talking about give in order to benefit people without the expectation that that buys them the right to long-term control over those people. I think that's true. I mean, the reason many of them donate actually is because they've had um, something bad happen in their life. And they, they, they want good luck. And they think that it's just, it's just you know, a cultural thing that they think that um, giving will bring good luck. So it is sort of selfish in a sense, but with a great <laughs> social benefit. But I think there's a sense in which giving from at least partly self-interested reasons can be more compatible with egalitarian relationships than some altruistic philanthropy that occurs on paternalistic terms. Again, I don't think the motivational and the relational questions map onto each other very neatly at all. Yeah. Well, lots of interesting issues. And thank you very much for uh, giving us your thinking, having obviously put a lot of thought into uh, something which doesn't really get a lot of attention. I mean, actually, it's just one point I might end on. I was just thinking about it, that lobbying, which is another act by rich people trying to influence uh, public affairs, gets a huge amount of attention. uh, But philanthropy, not much. Yeah. And part of my argument in the book is that we should be viewing these things much more continuously than we do, rather than treating them as separate activities pursued from separate motivations. Well, thanks very much for explaining all your your thinking to us. Thank you very much.